sixth chapter, verses 1 through 8. And it's titled this morning, The Certainty of Judgment. Judgment is not something that we like to discuss. We don't like to uh, uh, talk about it, but it is a certainty. And though we live in a time of grace and we live in a time of mercy, all of that will give way to judgment one day. And it will happen. And so we have to be aware of it. <clears throat> and though it's, it's interesting, I... I uh, was looking for a website for the UPCI ministers, and uh, I got on something that there was people pro-Pentecost and anti-Pentecost ex-preachers that were obviously been hurt that had an axe to grind, and I read enough of that, and I thought, I thought then I said, you know, God, it's it's probably a good thing our ministers are getting on this to clarify some things because there's people on here that obviously are possessed with devils that are coming against it. Uh, on the other side, you know, there's <clears throat> I, I get I get to looking at it and I realize how close we are when you read what some of the things that you read on that and hear some of the things you hear how close we are to the coming of the Lord and how people are forsaking, like the Bible said, you know, turning away from truth, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. We are living in that time, but we're also living in a time of, of great restoration. And uh, I, I believe that. So we, so with the one eye on judgment and the other eye on revival, we continue on. Uh, before I read, I'll try to do this again tonight, but I'd like to, uh, Tuesday night I want to call a prayer meeting. This is first of the year, and I'm, I can't have not been on things quite as well and as early as I normally do, but I, I want, I want to, we'll just do it since you're standing, raising of hands. How many people kind of get to fast on Monday? Okay, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, aha, uh-huh. oh, we got one, I need more, okay, Friday, here's a good one, are you ready? Only real people fast on Saturday, real Christians, we got one right there, I mean two, all right, and then Tuesday night, Tuesday night, excuse me, um, I'm going to say from 7 to 8 on prayer meeting, but I'll probably be here at a little after 6 if you want to come early uh, and pray. I'll be here a little after 6. And uh, so let's just let's plan on again praying till till 8, uh, as long as you want to be here, of course. You understand that, but I'm just putting a time for some people who need a, need a time limit. Um, so let's do that, and, and uh, let's, let's fast and pray for a... I, I don't want to just say... A revival, because you know, last couple of days in prayer, I, I feel like that, you know, the, there's always a, an awakening before a great move of God, and I, I want us to have an awakening, and not just an awakening towards revival. That's always that's always in our hearts, but an awakening of looking about us to see what's really going on. I think sometimes if God could just open our eyes and drop the scales uh, away of, of what is actually happening that all of us would be more attentive towards being soul winners. We'd be more attentive towards watching our own souls. And we need to do that more than anything else. You know, this is not about uh, little worldly things out there. People, There's so much out there to get your attention. So many people out there wanting money for this, and you need to be a protector of this or a protector of that, and all, all this kind of thing. And sometimes that gets in our minds and our hearts, and we forget the most important thing that we can do is win a soul. The most important thing that we can do is see our children make it to heaven. The most important thing we can do is see it to, that we make it to heaven. That is the important thing. Don't, don't get your eyes off what's really, what's really vital. Genesis, the sixth chapter, verses 1 through 8, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, you can say what you want, but the daughters of men, and the, uh, this is where demonic spirits took on the form of men or actually took over the body of men. Sons of God were not necessarily angels. They were angels, but fallen angels. They were fallen angels. They came in. This is where giants came from. This is where Goliath and his group came from. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man for... That he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in and the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. 
And God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. And repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing that from the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Hebrews 11, verse 7 says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Looking at Hebrews, we can, we can go back. We have the authority to go back and use the Old Testament as an example. Also, Peter spoke of, of Noah as well. And so did Jesus and, and Matthew. You may be seated. Now, Put up there the uh, rainbow stuff that I have, would you? Warning of the rainbow or promise of the rainbow. Let's start this with a good, lively discussion. What is the rainbow? Is it a warning thing? You know, is there a warning of the rainbow or is there a promise of the rainbow? Which, which, which falls in place? Now, raise your hands. Don't speak out of turn. Go ahead. What? Promise? Okay, anybody else? Promise? Okay. Bio? Do you believe there's a warning there? there? There's a warning as well. I mean, I know it talks about the promise, but there is a warning in this. There's a warning. What's the warning? The warning is that God passed judgment on a wicked world. He passed judgment on a world that was exceedingly wicked. So there is a warning as well as a promise. Now, the Bible says, right before the flood, he said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. And every dispensation of time God has extended, indeterminable uh, measure of mercy and grace. But after that period of long-suffering, after, let's just put it this way, after long-suffering was exhausted, and sometimes long-suffering can be exhausted, when that happened, then God dispensed judgment on mankind's sin. Now, let's look. At, you, you look at you look at God's. You can witness God's long suffering, you know, His mercy, His grace, and His judgment throughout the history of man. Scriptures also reveal that same pattern for the end of time. So, what happened in the days of Noah? And as Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be at the coming of the Son of Man. And, and Peter wrote this, he says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, but is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a fervent heat. So we are living in the days of God's grace and mercy, but unless mankind repents and changes things, it's going to happen one way or the other. But as you can look, as if, you, if you're a student of Scripture at all, and you make the comparisons and you look at, at the world, you go back historically and you see the, the changes in the world that they come. You know, we've had wars, we've had rumors of wars, but we've never had them to the extent that we've got them today. Uh, I, I, was, uh, I was reading, a, uh, I, I get a, a magazine called Backwoodsman. You never would think I'd get something like that, but, you know, I was just interested in, in this and and they give all kinds of information concerning bladed weapons and, and you know, uh, old, old firearms, this kind of thing, and how to live off the land and, you know, stuff I never would need, but, you know, it's fun. But this guy had written a story about the machete, which is a long knife used a lot of times in jungles. And he talked about, at the end of his story, he talked about the amount of people that were killed in World War One and World War Two, And he said, and he, this was based on facts, he said in Tunisia, and he gave a couple of others which have escaped me right now, but he said that in some of the African nations that there was 5 million Africans that were killed with bladed weapons, more than World War Two and World War One. And he said, you talk about, you said, you go all the way back, and he said, here they are killing more people with primitive weapons than what was killed with all the modern weapons throughout time when you, you add it all up. So, it's, so, so it's, it's, it's amazing when you see 
how now this is now I'm not talking about something was back 56 I'm talking about recent events these are the things that are happening now we don't hear about all this we wonder about you know when Jesus made that warning as it was in the days of Noah and you wonder about violence. You know, the Bible speaks of the days of Noah being violent. And then you see Jesus saying wars and rumors of war. But we see it happening so it's much more prevalent. It just runs over one another. And, and it's constantly going on. Constantly. And you're not talking about, you know, a few hundred dying. You're talking about millions dying anymore. So we see that the judgment cannot be far behind. Now, let's, let's just let's look, look at sin for a moment. And, and sin is a kind of a paradox, if if you want to use the term. It's a small word in the English language, yet its its results are more devastating than any other force known to man. It is it is inviting, yet it is condemning. It promises life and freedom, but sin gives death and bondage. So while the idea of sin did not originate with mankind, individuals certainly took the concept and they ran with it. Men, mankind loves to sin. Brother Fox and I were talking earlier. Uh, he's seen something on Facebook. And I've seen and heard this before, so it's nothing new. Well, Pentecost just isn't me. And I told him, I said, you know, when I was out working in the world, getting up at 7 a.m. or 6 a.m. and working until 7 o'clock at night, this wasn't me either. But, you know, I did it. And if you're going to make it to heaven, Pentecost better be you. Yeah. You don't just pick and choose. We're not, we're, the term Pentecost means 50. It's, it's not, but it's what it stands for. It is, the, it is the plan of salvation that it stands for. That is me. That is me. So you just don't pick and choose. Okay, this is me, so I'll choose something else. You have to choose what God has ordained for it to be. You know, there's not 777 different religions. There's one religion. If we want to use the term religion, which I don't like to use, but it's just something that we can base our ideas on. So there's this one, and we have to, we have to live by that one. So, you know, sin. Sin is not something that, you know, well, I just, I, I'm going to live in sin today and, and make a decision, and, you know, maybe within a few years I'm going to, I'll come back and, and, and I'll live for God. And there's a lot of people that do that. Some of them are fortunate enough to have the, be able to do that. But not every generation is going to be that fortunate. Sin has its way of marking you. Sin has its way of, of staying with you. I've seen people who have who've lived for God and have backslid and have been so devastated by sin after they got there that when they came back, it was very hard for them to be able to get back to what they once had. Now, it's not impossible, but it is hard because of the effect of sin in your life. Sin degrades people, pulls them down, and gets into your mind. The condemnation of sin gets into your mind and pulls you away and pulls you down. And when you come to God, you begin to look at yourself and say, How could God ever take me back in the condition I'm in? But thanks be to God that regardless of who you are and how bad that you have been, there is a blood that He shed on the cross that will bring you back and cover you and make everything all right again. Aren't you glad you know Him? Give Him a hand clap. we can look at, at, at Noah and we can get God's reaction. We can get God's reaction towards mankind and, and his sinful condition. We can see how God looked at it, how he reacted towards it. And not although God was patient and he was long-suffering, he had to pronounce judgment upon all those who would not obey his commands. That's just the way it was. And so, so while some consider the story of the flood only a, a religious myth, we're going we're gonna to look at just a few things. Some of you, I'm sure, that have gone to the, uh, the Creation Museum saw some of the things I'm going to bring out that brings these facts out. There was a one big universal flood, not floods, plural, that occurred through millions or billions of years. There was one flood. And see, the, your evolutionists would, well, they'll say, yes, there was floods, but there were several of them. But that's not the case, and that's not what geological evidence actually proclaims. So from the moment Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit in the garden, sin ruled in the hearts of mankind. 
Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating the fruit, and they denied their responsibility in the act. So Adam blamed his wife. We all know that, Eve. And Eve, of course, she blamed the serpent. And the wickedness and the irresponsibility continued until the days of Noah. That particular sin of irresponsibility is still going on today. Everybody likes to point a finger at someone else. I'm not serving God because of Eldar. I'm not serving God because there are too many hills in that church. Hard to get up those hills, you know. Yeah. I'm not serving God because Brother Davis is too long-winded when he teaches Sunday school. You know, I, I, I mean, it goes on and goes on. I, you notice I didn't say anything about I'm not going to that church because Brother Roberts is a pastor. <laughs> Got to be careful with all some of this stuff. <laughs> so we, we, you know, there's always, there's always some irresponsibility. The reason you're not going to church is because you don't want to. <laughs> I mean, that's just that simple. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. There's nothing that can separate you from the, from the church. I know, I, you know, you're all pretty people, and I love you, but you know, it's, it's, I don't come here just because of you. I come here to worship, to love God. I come here to lift Him up, to adore Him. Ah, to hear the Word of God, I, 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 that's why I come. And I, I would to God that more people could understand that. And God saw the wickedness of the man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. In the Amplified Bible, he further describes that condition of Genesis 6.12 as degenerate, debased, and vicious. Now think about that. That's what the Amplified says. The condition of the world before the flood was degenerate, debased, and wicked. Okay, it was, or vicious rather. Degenerate, debased, and vicious. Degenerate, debased, and vicious. Man. Sounds like, sounds like a Friday night in Bloomington. <laughs> you know? Still, in spite of man's wickedness, God extended mercy to him. God gave all flesh an opportunity to repent. And, and, and still he does. So sin's destructive effects are powerful and far-reaching. And, and God's patience is, is even more powerful, even more far-reaching. Think about that. Psalms 86, verse 15 says, But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. Anybody know what the word long-suffering means? Anybody have looked it up in Strong's? Anybody? Anybody have any ideas what long-suffering means? I mean, he said, well, it means to suffer long. <laughs> okay. Anybody else got any ideas? Raise your hand. Go ahead, Sister D. Okay. For the sake of mercy, putting up with something over and over and over again. Anybody else? Go ahead. you have your hand up? Oh, oh. Go ahead. Patience? Anybody else? You know, this is the one we don't, we never, and Strong's says this, and, and uh, to be honest with you, I've never really looked it up until I've seen this. Anybody else? Because, you know, it seems like, it means not soon angry. So you know what that tells me? That means that if, you, if it's not soon angry, the possibility of anger does exist. So when long suffering's over with, I get mad. I love that. I'm gonna put that up on the. We need to put that on PowerPoint. Robertson is long suffering now. <laughs> Actually, means slow to anger. Very slow to anger. So while God must judge sin, he's, sin he is always, it's always his desire first to extend his grace to the offending individual. He, he would prefer that the person pr repent of his disobedience and turn to him with, with contrition. So he would not have to pronounce judgment. Again, 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but his long-suffering or not soon angry to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Luke's gospel tells a story of Jesus, and this is one of the best stories to, to separate the Old and the New Testament. Jesus and his apostles are going into a, a, a city in Samaria. And as they're going in, 
And they went into this town. They preached. No one responded. So I believe it was, uh, it was James and John who, who looked to Jesus. He said, all right, Jesus, should we do like Elijah did and we'll call down fire from heaven to consume them? And you know, in our nature, that's what we would like to do. You know, you go, you put forth an effort and you're knocking on doors and you're trying to get kids to come to Sunday school or fill up your van and you're, you know, an LR, you're out trying to get people, you're trying to get Bible studies and, and no one responds the right way. There's a part of us that instantly says, let's just call down fire from heaven and let's consume them because they're not worth anything. And don't you think that I don't think those thoughts occasionally when I'm in my office. <laughs> and occasionally, you know, and you've got somebody, well, Brother Robertson, I just can't be fed here at McCormick Street Church. I've got to go elsewhere. And, you know, and I'm saying, God, let the fire fall. And I'm just burn right up there. Don't tear up my chair, but then I burn up right there. <laughs> you know? That's the human side of all of us. But Jesus told him, he said, you don't know what spirit you're of. He said, you don't know what spirit you're of at all. And he said, he said and he turned, he said, he rebuked him. And he said, you don't know what manner of spirit you are, for the Son of Man has come not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. To save them. There's your difference between the Old and New Testament. Now, granted, we're seeing in that story of Noah, the grace was extended to, to Noah. All right, we see that. So, so he was not soon angry with Noah. But on the other side of it, when you read through the Old Testament, primarily you have prophets who give the word, and if it doesn't happen, then, you know, you got Elisha who goes up, and they make fun of him for being bald-headed, and they get the bears come out of the woods and eat the kids. I mean, that's the story. When Jesus came, it was all of God's mercy and grace and long-suffering that was manifested in the flesh, the man Christ Jesus. It was all right there. And he said, things are changing. And if God had not have changed, if Jesus had not have come, God in the flesh, if he'd not have come, then we would still be living under that. But he did come and extend mercy, grace to us today. So that's, that's the story. Noah's world was evil. But not so evil that it was beyond God's reach of mercy and forgiveness. And God waited while mankind had the opportunity to repent. But only Noah and his family found favor in God's eyes. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou in thy house into the ark, for, thou, for thee have I seen righteous before me. have seen righteous before me in this generation. God did not see it as a waste of time to wait for Noah to construct the ark and to gather the animals for the people. It was a period of God's grace. So every day that Noah prepared the ark, every day that Noah brought an animal on, every day that he preached a message, it was a day of God's grace. Every day from the crucifixion to now has been a day of God's grace and mercy. And for as long as it goes in the future, it's one more day of grace, one more day of mercy. We live in the grace of God, every one of us. Don't take for granted what you have. Do not take for granted what God has given you in the baptism of the Holy Ghost, in the Jesus' name baptism, the opportunity to repent. Do not take that for granted. That's one more day of God's grace. We've got grace today. Somebody out there has got the opportunity to be saved because of grace. Mankind continued to sin. and God finally reached the point where he repented that he had made man. And it repented the Lord that he had made man. How is it that God repents? Someone tell me that. Come on, Tony, tell me how God repents.
That's excellent. And that's, that's exactly right. It is, it's a sense of sorrow. Sorrow that, yes, he knew that man was going to do what man did. But there's that hope. I mean, how many of you can understand about Just listen to what I have to say, and, and let me know if you understand what I'm saying here. You know, I know, that there's going to be an end. God's coming for his church. There's going to be signs that precede this. But when you see these signs coming to pass, and you see people acting and doing the way they do, don't you sit back and say, how can people be so stupid? I mean, don't you? How can people fall for this? You know, you stop and think about it, and I believe we're going to go before the mark of the beast, but I think the, everything is going to be ready for it. And, and you're already seeing a lot of that now. And, and I see people make statements or hear people, you know, anything to protect me, anything to keep me safe, I'll take a mark, I'll do this. How is it that people can be so naive? You know, it's not like... You know, most any and every religion, as far as Christianity goes, believes in that. And it's, it's, it's out there, it's published all the time about the mark of the beast. They make movies about the mark of the beast, so people understand it. But yet, you still see them willingly go that direction. You can get so entangled in this world, so wrapped up in the world and this living and, and, you know, you see the identity theft that goes on. You see how easy it would be to get on an airplane if you had a, some kind of chip embedded in your hand where they could know who you were. You see the ease of it all, and we have our creatures that want our ease. We want everything to be that way. And I really believe that was a time that preceded the flood. It was people wanting it easier. Because they say that they go back beyond, and they say that there was a lot of more modern things prior to the flood than people realize. And so we see that same conditions happening today. Sin necessitates God's judgment. God is holy, and He cannot indefinitely and will not indefinitely bear the disobedience of mankind. So consequently, in the days of Noah, God judged mankind through a worldwide flood. God told Noah in Genesis 6:17, Behold, I, even I, do bring a flood on the waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. The Bible describes this flood in Genesis 7:12, stating, And the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. This downpour literally cleansed the world of evil, leaving only a righteous family and the animals that were on the ark. Some individuals, again, may doubt this event. A lot of people would like to doubt this event ever happened, but there is a strong geological evidence that a massive flood did occur in uh, and, chapter 2 of his book. Has anybody ever read? I've not read this book. I think I'm going to look for it. Uh, it's called The Evolution, Evolution When Fact Became Fiction. Anybody ever read that? Evolution When Fact Became Fiction. You have? Raise your hand. Nobody has. I'm going to be looking for it. Uh, this is good. It's got the, the, um, the writers, Ricky Pavlou, and he points out that sedimentary deposits are of great importance in studying the flood because water formed all sedimentary deposits. And he further states that rather than many small floods over millions of years forming sedimentary layers, a single catastrophic worldwide flood actually formed these deposits. Now, conventional science may balk at that statement, but there's hard evidence that proves this biblical account of the flood. The proof lies in the fossils found in the sedimentary layers. A, a plant or animal must be rapidly buried to be fossilized. But they say fossils have been found positioned vertically in several sedimentary layers. Now this is impossible by the evolutionist claims because these layers normally take a long time to form. So consequently it is not possible for fossils to form across several of, this, of these layers. The only way this could happen is if the layers formed quickly, and the only way that layers could have formed quickly was by a flood, singular. That's the only way. Additionally, coal deposits point toward a biblical flood. 
Organic matter underground, uh, undergoing intense compression creates coal deposits. Evolutionists claim this pressure occurred slowly over billions of years, and a worldwide flood, however, explains this phenomenon. Pavlou explains if the flood waters rose 5,000 to 10,000 feet above sea level to cover the highest mountains, then the water pressure on the Earth's surface would have amounted to two tons per square inch. Now, this intense water pressure, along with the pressure of sediments deposited over the organic matter, would have been sufficient to produce coal and oil fields as we know them. And if you don't believe that, and I've, I've a couple of times I've dove in diving, I've been down 100 feet. And you just go, I'm talking about 100, not 10,000, but, you know, nothing like that. 100 feet going down, your skin begins to prickle. You feel the pressure. You're, you're breathing. Everything changes. and I, I mean, it changes all the way down. But at 100 feet, it changes considerably. Uh, you know, they, they go deeper than 100 feet with, with standard uh, scuba gear anymore. You know, they've changed it, got nitrous oxide mixes and so forth. But, but it, you know, the fact that 100 feet is the most comfortable, and it's really, you shouldn't go too much further than 100 feet down. But you go down, you can feel the pressure. And can you imagine the water pressure of thousands and thousands of feet? Enough to form this. And, and so God knew exactly what I was doing. I, I've often thought God used the flood to destroy the world, but also to create oil fields, which will, be, <laughs> which will be probably what destroys us the second time or changes us. Let's just put it that way. So he used the first one to get everything set for the second one. When it's going to melt, when the elements will melt with the fervent heat. So it, it, it's interesting. Man had ensnared himself in sin like an animal caught in a trap. He was doomed to die. God weighed mankind in the balances. During the days prior to the flood, he weighed him in the balances and he found man to be wanting. Man to, to not be what man should be. So God did not desire that his beloved creation should perish completely. So consequently, God provided a means by which man could escape death. First, God extended his grace toward mankind. He reached out for man since man could not reach out to him. Isn't that the way God has always done? God has always been the one. Don't you ever believe that you were the one who made up your mind to, to, to serve God? never did make up your mind to serve God. God began to reach for you, and you just, you just made a choice. You just made a choice to embrace the one that was already embracing you. That's every one of us has been the same thing. I can remember coming to God. I can remember God's conviction on my heart. I remember His embrace on me, and I made a choice. I can't stand this anymore. I cannot stand this anymore. I don't want to live this way. I don't want to be this way. I don't want to raise my family this way. I'm going to serve God, and I'm going to serve Him with everything that I've got. Aren't you glad you made that choice one day? Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. So he, got, he gave man his wonderful gift of grace. He gave mankind a choice as to whether or not they would follow him. God then revealed the fullness of his plan for the salvation of mankind. God gave clear instructions about how mankind could escape the tentacles of sin and, and, and grasp, uh, sin's grasp. Rather. He did not frustrate man by telling him to do something without explanation. In Noah's day, he explained to Noah what he was going to do. In Noah's day, he gave Noah the blueprint. By voice, he spoke to Noah. His voice gave Noah the blueprint of the ark. It was not enough. It was not enough for Noah to believe what God said. Hear me. It was not enough for him to say, okay, there is a God. I heard his voice. It's not enough to just believe what God said. There's a lot of people sitting around, I'll believe that message of Pentecost, bless God, but they never do anything about it. If Noah hadn't have taken the blueprints and put things, faith into action, you see, grace is no good unless you've got faith. You're saved by grace through faith, that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. So without faith, grace is just dormant. What is grace? I mean, I've... We've had this, and I've talked about this. Grace, the simplest, this is Robertson 6 and 4. And if you disagree with this, you, you try to prove me wrong. Grace is opportunities. It's, it's what grace is, the unmerited favor of God. I know all that, and, and that's all good, and I'm sure the strong's all that. But you stop and think about it. Grace is dormant unless you take the opportunity by faith to tap into what grace has given you. Opportunities opportunities 
All right, let's look at it. J.R. Enzi's new Cyclopedic Theological Dictionary describes grace as God's compassion and favor, the empowerment to perform His will, and the strength to do what is right in difficult circumstances. Opportunities. Through grace, you're empowered. What, what is it about grace that empowers you? Anybody want to define that to me? Give me a definition. What is it about grace that empowers you personally? Anybody? Raise your hand. What about grace? How are you empowered by you? Go ahead. exactly right. That is an excellent way of putting it. That's excellent. Because no matter what, we are we are going to fail. What does the Bible say? The just man shall fall seven times and rise again. Rejoice not against me, O my enemy, for when I fall I shall rise again. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. Why does this say that unless that possible? Why? I, I, I remember, and I've said it here probably many times. We'll say it one more time for those who haven't heard me. It was T.W. Barnes that made a simple statement on a on a, on, a, on a disc or tape, whatever it was. That's been years ago. But he made a simple statement, and I, it, it hit me at the right time. And it was just simply this. He said, more, he said, not enough people understand the power of the blood. Not enough people understand the power of the blood. And we have, the blood is what has given us grace. It's the blood that has done everything for us. It's everything is there. What's he saying? He's saying if, if the blood cleansed me initially, everything behind me is gone. But it never has stopped working in my life because if it did stop, if I had one cleansing, I would be lost. I need it every day. Every day I repent. Every day I forgive. Uh, I, I would we could all understand that sometimes you you just get so loaded down with your own uh, self abasement, if you would, you know, your own recriminations, your condemnation, and you you know you you just begin to think that it, it's, it's like you said, you people, I just can't I can't overcome this. Well, you know, whatever I fail, I get up and say, okay, I'm going to try this again. I cannot stay down. I have too much to lose. I cannot stay down. So we have opportunities with, with grace. You know, you, look, God extended His grace to Noah, and then, and then He empowered Noah to perform His will by giving him the blueprints for building the ark. God also gave Noah strength, physical strength to build the ark, and spiritual strength to preach to the world and inhabitants and not lose sight of His mission. The ten simple words found in verse 8 describe the grace that Noah found, but they also reveal the grace of God available to us today. God has called us to salvation and a life of holiness, and only His grace can enable us to experience that calling. Through, and through the grace of God, sin no longer has control over us. According to Romans 6.14, says this, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. However, grace is not all we need to experience God's redemption. 
Paul clearly stated in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. I quoted that a little earlier. It is a gift of God. Mankind also has to have faith in God's grace. And if you have faith in God's grace, you're going to have faith in God's blood. You're going to have faith in it. He redeemed us with His own blood. So I have to believe that blood is still working in my life. If I ever do, it's written, Jesus said, Will I find faith when I return? Faith in what? Faith in what He did. Let's look at faith. The focus of Hebrews 11 is faith. And the chapter begins with that fundamental definition of faith. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. There is substance to faith. It is not empty thought but a decision to believe accompanied by a prod to action. That's what faith is. Faith should prod us to action. It should, it, it, it's, it's not just a matter of mental assent. I know. I believe Jesus. I, but you have to do something with it. It's the reason February 5th we're going to talk about building personalities. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to try to invent me a machine to run everybody through by then to, to, to get you over some of your self-doubts and some of the fact you can teach Bible studies. You can win somebody to God. This year we're going to see some people win to God. Every preacher in this place needs to make an effort to win one person to God. Every one of us. We need to see them down here, filled with the Holy Ghost, baptized in Jesus' name, and our cell groups. That's what we need. It's not enough for you to believe what I just said. Your faith should prod you. To action. Noah believed that God would do what he said he would do, and consequently his faith motivated him to take action. Noah's faith in God's spoken word coupled with his action of building the ark facilitated his salvation and the salvation of his family. This relationship between mental ascent and physical action appears in James 2.17. Since even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Since the beginning of time, man has longed to learn about faith. Every one of us. How many have you just times of you? I, I, I told you, I, I thought, I told Sister Deem earlier, and I'm going to probably next Sunday night preach a little bit in these lines, but I, I thought I understood faith. I thought I understood what trusting God and, and having faith in God was. I thought I did. But I realized when I was down that, that I had faith in God as long as I was hearing the doctor say the right words. As long as the doctor said, we'll give you this drug or give you that and we'll give you this antibiotic and everything will be okay. Then I had all kinds of thank you, Jesus. You know, I didn't have any faith in him. I had faith in what that man was telling me. I'm sorry if that, I don't mean to knock your faith. I'm just saying that this is for me. I pray about faith. I pray, God, I want to see great things. I want to see a move of God. I've seen great things. I've seen it overseas. I've seen it here, but not to the extent that I'm happy. I'm sorry. I know you're supposed to be in content in whatever state you're in. I'm content in Indiana. That's good enough. <laughs> you know, but when he said, I don't know what else to do, then there was no other alternative. There was no other alternative. I had to get a hold of God. And I got a hold of God. And as soon as I got a hold of God, I knew I got a hold of God. And again, I'll give you more details on that next Sunday. But I, I, I just, I realized then this was, this was my way, or God's way of prompting me. There had to have been something to it. I'm not one of those people that's one in 10,000. And yet I was one in 10,000. You know, if it was a lottery, it had been okay. Well, I'm sorry. You know. <laughs> Don't play the lottery. It's gambling. But if you win, pay your tithes. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> There's no sense in adding insult to the injury. <laughs> oh, so he must act faith. Faith must be acted. Genuine faith necessitates action. This is clear throughout Hebrews 11. Now, this is, this is pretty good stuff. In every case in Hebrews 11, you read it for yourself. In every case... Uh, the subject either took action or received action through their faith. Abel offered. He offered. Abraham obeyed. Isaac blessed. 
Joseph made mention and Moses forsook. Every one of them had an action. Other subdued kingdoms wrought righteousness, obtained promises, and stopped the mouths of lions. Faith requires action. Christians often wait to act until they have mustered the faith necessary to perform God's will instead of going out by faith. Now, let me, let me qualify this. I, I want to say this because I, I feel it's important. A lot of people overdo what they should be taking steps in doing the right thing. Now, I know personally know of men who wanted revival. I personally know some of them. They wanted revival in the, in the worst way. And somehow... Their faith got twisted, or their actions on faith. So they thought that if they built this huge building, amphitheater, church, that they could have revival. So now all they're doing is stuck fundraising all the time to try to pay for the building. All right? You want revival. We need to take a step by faith. What do you do towards taking a step by faith in that situation? It's not build because the building was an ego trip. And that can, that can happen. Now, Brother Davis kicks me all the time for not building this one bigger. He's right. I should have. I just want to be everybody know I wasn't on an ego trip. <laughs> Brother, Brother Davis keeps me, keeps me safe and sane. And, and, uh, I need somebody like that around me. So what would you take? You want revival? What's a step in faith you should take towards revival? Anybody? What do you do? I mean, it's simple. Well, come on, let's go further than that. Praying fast, let's go further than that. Win souls. It's that simple. I want revival. Okay, I've got to, I've got I've got a building here that's that's uh, seats uh, seventy five, and I've got seventy five people in it. Why right, do I go build a building that that will seat a thousand with seventy five people? With the hope, no, you're going to put a strain on everything. You're straining. The thing to do is put out chairs. When you start doing it, then or a home group, there you go, or you know you 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 do you act you know you have to act accordingly. I, I, I believe there's always there's always a Bible teaches us this. There's always actions of faith, but sometimes I, I boy, if my wife is in here, she would tell you. God has given us what we need, and 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 her way of thinking on this, she says this. She said, in every church, there is enough people. To have, and I, and I realize there should be churches in areas, and I know that we're on this big kick in the UPC to you know start churches everywhere, and I believe in that. You know, I want like to do this in in Gosport, but not really a church as much as an outreach center. Because what happens is you begin straining resources. You know, it takes you don't have a clue how much it takes to keep this thing heated and lights in it. You know, you 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 begin you begin to strain. So if everybody worked together. And next week, I think Brother uh, uh, Davis has got this lesson about unity. The, if we worked in, in unity and unison, we wouldn't need to do some of the things that we do. And so we strain resources. I'm not one of those green machines people. You know, I'm not. You all know that. But on the other hand of it, uh, other hand, let's just look at it in the fact of how much it costs. If, if, if fuel is going up, if electricity is costing more, then why don't we? I offered one time, and, it's, and I won't say who, you, some of you know, I offered one time to allow someone to use this church in the Sunday afternoon. You know, he had a church, and he was paying a building. He was paying electricity. I said, you can come in here, and it's not going to cost us that much more for the lights to be on and the heat to be on this in a Sunday afternoon. But he wouldn't do it. He wanted his own building. You know, he wouldn't do that. And I thought, why in the world? You know, if someone made me the right offer, I'd probably we'd just move out and sell the place. Don't have to... <laughs> no, no, I'm just joking, you know. But I'm saying that... that, that Actions of faith are not taking these huge steps that is no thing. You've got to be honest with yourself. How much of this is for me and how much of this is for God? And you better be sure you're hearing the voice of God or you're going to get yourself in a royal mess. And there's been times that I thought I heard it and I didn't necessarily hear it. And there's been times that I thought I didn't hear it and I actually heard it and it turned out in the long run. You know, God has a way of letting you know when he's still in control of things, and, and he does. And, and, and I, I just, it's taking the steps. 
Yeah, I believe there's time of building a building. But we need we need a fellowship hall in the worst way. But I'm not going to go out there and build a million-dollar fellowship hall unless i got a million dollars in my hand. And then I'll build $750,000 and save the rest. And while a lot of these guys forget that you still have to clean the thing, you have to put electricity in the you know. Uh, I have no problems with being frugal, so you'll, I think you understand that. But I, and maybe to a fault to some extent, but you know what? The great thing is we're going through a really difficult time financially as far as, as the United States is going, and we don't have a bill here. You know, so outside of the, the normal bills. So if you want to give twice as much, you can pay 20% of your tithes, it will help us with the electrical bill, or 30%. 50% do like Caterpillar. He paid 90%. Uh, that's uh, and he had a he did very well. Moving on. In his goodness, God provided a plan by which Noah and his family should be saved from the impending flood. Genesis 6:18. God told Noah, "But with thee I will establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee." The act of God's grace reveals that even after God pronounced judgment, He was willing to rescue those who desired to live for Him. God's plan for for deliverance was an ark. A massive floating fortress designed to house Noah's family and the animals and supplies that was supposed to replenish the world. God told Noah how to build the ark. It was to be a three-story boat made of gopher wood. Noah was to cover the inside, the outside with pitch to waterproof it. Measured approximately 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high, resulting in a volume of about 1.5 million cubic feet. It had one window and one door. God has always made a way for the righteous to be saved. I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. He established the pattern by saving Noah and his family with the ark. He later provided the law to Moses and the people of Israel. This law sanctified the people in God's eyes. Both of these vehicles for salvation simply pointed to God's master plan for the redemption of all mankind, clothing Himself in flesh, dying for His creation, and living in the hearts of mankind through His Spirit, the Holy Ghost. And just as He did with Noah, God provides us with the blueprints necessary for our salvation. Noah's blueprints were spoken words and a physical boat that housed God's creation. The blueprints for our salvation involved receiving God's written word and embracing the Son of God who housed God's Spirit. So when we obey the Scriptures, God will inhabit us and save us from our sins. That is that simple. It's the blueprint that God has left us, and it is likened unto the original uh, blueprint for Noah. And it's not enough that God provided a way of escape for Noah. He had to obey God and follow his plan. Genesis 6.22 says, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Noah did exactly what God told him to do and what would have happened if Noah had not done what he told him to do. What if he had decided not to build the ark and all of mankind would have perished? You know, sometimes, I, I've said this before, I, I believe this, there's always key things that happen. Always look for that. You know, you, there, the, you, we want revival, and you pray and you fast like we're going to be doing this week. We're fasting, we're praying, we're seeking revival. And sometimes God saves that one person. Somebody brings them in, witnesses to them. You don't even think about them a lot of times. You teach them a Bible study. Maybe you taught them a Bible study. It's happened here before, a year ago or two years ago. And all of a sudden that person comes in. God deals with them, and that person comes in. And that person is the key element for a revival. That person brings all their family and all their friends in. And that is the key element for a revival. So you never know. You never really know. You know, that one person, I always think of, of Charles Mahaney. I've, I've, he, of course, he's dead now. But he was, a, he was a, back in the 80s, a great revivalist. And he did prison ministries. And, uh, you know, he, he made a statement here. He preached here for us. And he made a statement here where he talked about, his pastor, he went to a small church, he said about 30 people, when he was originally saved in that church, and he said that, uh, of course, he did like a lot of them do, they come in and get saved and go back out and, and uh, do whatever they want to do, and he said he missed about four or five services, and the pastor called him, uh, I can't remember the pastor's name, and that's always the thing, you never remember the people who really did the work, but you remember him, and uh, 
He went to, you know, he called him and he said, and he said these words. I'll never forget the words. He didn't say a whole lot. He says, this Charles? He said, yeah. And he said, uh, he said, you know, you stay away from the table too long, you'll starve to death. And he said, well, I'll be there next Sunday. And he did. And he got a hold of it. He got a hold of it. And, you know, he became an international, uh, you know, a prison ministry person who actually preached at a lot of churches in the 70s and the 80s. And he, uh, and and you know, but you again, the pastor who who God used to say a silly little word, a little phrase, you know, and and make the difference, make the difference, and that's that's what it that's what it takes for all of us. We never know who you're going to touch. A word fitly spoken, like apples of gold and pictures of silver. So it's it's important to be obedient when God asks you to do something. Noah was obedient. And, and we have to be obedient. Individuals often seek to understand why God has asked them to do something uh, a certain way. And perhaps they think their, their way is easier. You ever stop and think about it? God, if you just let me do this my way, it would be a whole lot better. We think we can. It's not our place to seek to understand why God does what God does. It's not really required of us to understand everything. Obedience is essential. To obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken them for the fat of rams. It matters little what we say or do for God if it is not said or done with specific obedience. Without obedience, our work is for nothing. There is no substitute for a man's explicit obedience to God. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and were expelled from paradise. Jesus Christ obeyed, however, and voluntarily gave himself on the cross, thereby opening the way of redemption to all mankind. Romans 5.19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Jesus' obedience made a way whereby he may become righteous through him. His obedience enables us to become what we could not have become otherwise. Aren't you glad that Jesus was obedient? He had human flesh. There's a side of him there that's just like us. He had to battle some things just like we have to battle some things, yet without sin. So the story of Noah and the flood is not merely a history lesson, not at all. It's a physical Old Testament example of a spiritual New Testament principle. And, and that's how we have to see it, and, and that's how we live, need to live it. Obviously, Noah's actions saved his family from physical death. First Peter 3.20 makes this clear. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah... Where the ark was preparing were in few, that his eight souls were saved by water. However, Noah's actions did more than save himself. More than save himself. He saved his family as a result of his obedience. You know, we see Noah's actions. We see the foundation for God that established a type of water baptism through the flood. Not only, you know, the flood gives us the example of the necessity of being baptized. Who died for your sins? Regardless if you're here this morning and what your belief is on a trinity or whatever, think about this for a minute. I feel led to say this. There was one who died for your sins. There's only one name. If there was a such a thing as a trinity, there's only one name in that so-called trinity, and that's Jesus. And the Bible says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby ye must be saved. Jesus is the only name. And if you've not taken on that name in water baptism, this is what this is talking about. The same water that destroyed can save. That same water that destroyed the earth bore up the ark and saved them. Now, I don't believe in a trinity. I believe in God and manifestations. Manifest in the Father and creation, the Son and, and salvation and the Holy Ghost and regeneration. I believe that. But I don't believe that you have three co-equal and co-eternal people. But this, regardless of why you are trying to come to, just remember, there's only one name. Only one name. I don't know why I said that, but we'll just go with it and see what happens. Now, Genesis 6, 11 through 13 depicts the conditions of the world today. Uh, wars have littered the past 100 years. I made statement. We look at the coming of the Lord. Our theme this year is anticipating the sunset. I'm anticipating the coming of the Lord. I do not want to leave anything undone in my life. And we see how the wars are, are working. We see the earthquakes and divers. Did uh, some of you, uh, I think it was a week or two ago, where they had a uh, 
an earthquake just north of here? Anybody? And that's never happened before, and that was not an area where it ever happened. Is that correct? Well, I'd, I had read, I read about it, and I'm pretty sure they said that this was so unusual because they expected something like that down in this area, but not in that area. And, you know, you go back where the Bible says earthquakes and divers are diverse places. It's not a matter of earthquakes. It's a matter of places where never were earthquakes before. And so we, so we see, you know, that there's just another sign of divers' places. I, I, I get that because I, so many people, when they, they read something, they don't read into really what God's trying to say. And it does say divers' places different. You know, there has been earthquakes in this area before. In fact, I, was, I think when that occurred, my wife moved me out on the porch and put a bed. That's where I had to stay with dogs and stuff while I was recovering. And, uh, and so... So I'm a, actually, she says, well, we have to walk very far. So, you know, I, I stayed out on the porch. And uh, so I, I'm asleep. And I think it was like 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning when that thing hit. And I remember waking up thinking I was chilling or something. You know, <laughs> I was shaking real bad. <laughs> and my wife said, came in later and said, you feel that? And I said, oh, I thought I was just, you know, having a bad chill here. <laughs> she said, no, I think when we found out later it was an earthquake. So, you know, these do happen. It's, it's in divers places. And, and the Bible says, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurs, complainers, walking after their own lust in their mouth, speaking great swelling words of men's persons and admiration because of advantage. With strong language, Jude warned of the judgment of God to come on this world. It would be foolish to ignore it would be foolish for us to ignore the warning of Scripture. God will judge the world, and we will have only one opportunity to be ready. When God comes, when judgment begins, there's no opportunities after that. And I don't know when Jesus is coming back for the church. And for us to sit up here and say, you know what I feel, I feel like a generation ends in 2018 from 1948, a generation being 70 years. So I believe it will be sometime within that, that time frame. I really believe it will be within this decade. I, I, I believe that. Again, I could be wrong. I'm not saying, you know, that, you know, I could be right in as much as that uh, by 2018 the, the uh, you know, it would be the end or when, when the Lord comes and sets up the white throne judgment. You know, we, we don't, not the white throne judgment, but the millennial reign, I'm sorry. Getting out of hack here. But I'm saying that it could be, you know, seven years of tribulation may enter in before that period of time. I don't know. So that means it could happen any time. It could happen at any time. 2012, it could happen. It could happen. And, and you know, it could be, and I may be wrong. God may, I, I've often believed that our signs could continue and they'll continue until the snowball effects just, just goes on until, until the Lord has to come. But on the other side of that, and the other side of it, if people begin to cry out and they don't want the Lord to come because of loved ones, I think a lot of it's going to be us saying, even so, come quickly, quickly, Lord Jesus. And so what that tells me is the conditions are going to have to get so severe that we want the Lord to come. In other words, we won't see the great tribulation, but we will see hard times, which some people might make the mistake of thinking as tribulation. Don't ever think that hard times will be what the great tribulation will be. If you read about it in the book of Revelation and you see what's going to occur on the earth, it'll never be. But we will see some hard times because God has got to get us prepared. One thing, I, I made a statement. I made a statement. I was talking to Sister Dean before service. When God, another thing I feel led to say, when God puts you through a hard time and you keep flunking that test, and God puts you through it again, and you've got something lacking in your relationship with God, Maybe you've got aught in your heart against somebody, brother. I don't know. I'm not even saying. There's so many things there that can add into it. But you go through a difficult time. Learn from the lesson. Learn from the lesson. Don't go back and do the same stupid thing over and over and over again. If we keep doing the same thing that we've always done, we're going to get the same results. Keep walking circles and you're never going to get anywhere. And that's exactly what some people are doing. Learn 
Things have not gone well for you. Your family's not... What are you doing wrong? And don't you look back there and say, well, don't you say I'm doing anything wrong. Well, what are you doing wrong? Think about it. Look at yourself. Examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. That's Bible. I'm not telling you you are doing something wrong, but if you've been going to something for several years and you're getting the same result, then there's something wrong. That good preaching? Let's stand. No. Thank you, Jesus. I see that we, uh, I don't think, uh, I don't think Adam said what our, our uh, he might have and I might have missed it. He didn't see what our offering was going for today. I've been trying to do this and I see we got this up here now. So we can say, what is the date? It's the 16th. Okay, so that was in pastoral and staff salaries, payroll taxes, annual security, which we have to do. Uh, here for the church. That's what it was for. I could just go ahead and take up another offering. Maybe that's what I ought to do. I'll give you a break. I'll let you do that tonight. So you give three times as much tonight. Everybody said amen. God's going to give it to me. Amen. Amen. Let's raise our hands. Thank you, Lord, for everything that you've done. I bless you. I love you. I thank you. You are. You have been great to us. You have been wonderful to us. You have strengthened us. You have been with us. You have, you have encouraged us, Jesus. You have been there. You have gone before us. And I pray now that you would continue. Bless each and every one that is here. God, that you would touch them, that you would help them, that you would be with them, that you would bless their finances, you would bless their homes, their families. I ask now in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come early and pray tonight, and the Lord bless you.